You are listening to Coffee with Curtis and I'm Robert Curtis. Welcome to the show. Coffee with Curtis is a weekly podcast where you will be able to tune into my conversations over coffee with business leaders sharing their journey and experiences to give you insights to impact your own business. So grab a coffee and enjoy the show. Joining me on Coffee with Curtis this week is Rob Goldstone. Rob is an author, journalist, international publicist and marketing expert who hit the headlines a few years ago when he wrote what has been coined the most famous email in history. We're going to come to that during the podcast. But Rob has also represented some of the biggest names in the world, household names that you will all know. And he's going to be sharing some of those stories, insights and learnings so that we can actually take those into our own professional development, our own professional PR and company PR. So Rob, welcome to Coffee with Curtis. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. That's such an introduction. I feel like I should just say thank you, good night and switch off. That's (laughs) as good as it's going to get, I think. I don't believe that because I have read and listened to all of your work and we are in for an absolute treat today. So listeners, stay tuned. Um, Rob, before we, I guess, um, dive into some of the specific topics that we want to cover, give us a whirlwind tour on Rob Goldstone before we come to talk about that famous email, first of all. Um, so the whirlwind is, um, starts in Manchester in England. And um, at 16, I became a trainee journalist for the Jewish Gazette. That was my claim to fame. I was a trainee sports reporter. And um, I famously got the job because I told them I knew nothing about sport and nothing about reporting and not that much about Judaism. So they gave me the job. And um, from then I went on, I worked for a lot of weekly and, and daily newspapers eventually i worked on fleet street i had a, a stint on the sun and the sunday mirror and then i went into radio which was really my passion i worked for lbc and brmb in birmingham and piccadilly in manchester and um from there i moved as a journalist to australia and i worked for the equivalent of the press association over there for many years and it was whilst doing that that i became a publicist Kind of overnight, um, I covered a story with Michael Jackson and ended up going on the road with him, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and became his kind of tour publicist for no reason other than I was there. And at the end of that, I decided, well, I couldn't possibly go back to the boredom of being a regular journalist. So I literally said, I'm a publicist. And from then on, that's about 25, maybe more years ago now, um, I've been a publicist. I've been uh, in marketing. I was the head of international marketing for HMV Group. So I looked after all of their music stores when at the time they were the largest uh, music retailer in the world. So I helped them develop out their business in Asia and in Australia and in parts of Europe as well. And in the United States where I became a vice president of HMV in the US. And after that, I own my own PR and marketing company, which I've done for many years, and all of which was going swimmingly. And then another topic I'm sure we'll talk about. I wrote a 137-word email, which almost caused World War III. And um, it was an email to Donald Trump Jr. that led in part to what's now known as Russiagate and the inquiry 
inquiry and investigation into Trump's antics in, in Moscow. And as I say, I, I'm sure we'll talk about that later. And I've now relocated back to the homeland, back to the UK, uh, and I'm kind of reinventing myself a bit. I'd written a book, uh, and I now host a podcast called An Englishman In, where twice a week, I interview interesting people from the world of politics and media and celebrity and all of that good stuff and um, chat to them about life. And uh, it's, it's been number one, the number one entertainment podcast in four countries. It's been top 10 in a dozen others. So we shall see. That's where I'm at at the moment. There is my brief history. What a whirlwind. And first of all, listeners, I really recommend that you go and um, subscribe to Rob's podcast. It is excellent. He's got really an array of super guests and really interesting conversations. But Rob, I think it's classic. You're an expert in something that you um, just say you are because you say you're the expert. And I think it was Richard Branson I once saw um, say something like, you know, if someone gives you something to do, and you don't know how to do it, say yes and figure it out later. Uh, ah, well, I need to stop you because I represented Richard Branson for a while in Australia and I have living proof or I am living proof of exactly that. <laughs> you know, I represented his Virgin megastores out there and when he would come out to Australia, I would look after him. And on one occasion, he said to me, you know, what? I I'm going to launch this airline in England, but we may as well talk about it here in Australia. And let's just say we're bringing it to Australia. And I said, well, are you? And he goes, I have no idea. But why don't you talk about it? And he introduced me and asked me to talk about it. And for about 15 minutes, I talked to journalists about some airline that was going to come to Australia, which he had no idea of. I had no idea of. And it's funny because ultimately he did have an airline out there, Virgin Blue opened in Australia, but that was 20 years later or something. But um, he was living proof of somebody who you only needed to say one thing to him. And like, if you said, oh, you know, Virgin raindrops would be a good idea. Within minutes, he'd be like, let's have a conversation about Virgin raindrops. That's amazing. How can we make rain into a brand? And I have to say, because I'll forget, and it's one of my most favorite stories ever in my bazillion year career. He was giving a speech and he made a, um, I don't know if it's a malaprop or whether he was just strange, but he meant to say that he was a grandson of Lloyd George. And he told an audience that he was the grandfather of Boy George. And I don't even know what that's called, except maybe he'd had a few to drink. I don't know. But it was very funny at the time. And I always remembered it. I am the grandfather of Boy George. No, you're not. You're a grandson of Lloyd George. But anyway, I love there it. you Is go. Is he actually a grandson? Of I have no idea. I never got that far. Based on a lot of things he said, maybe not. But you never know. It sounded good at the time. I think we, uh, when we originally met, Rob, you, uh, you told us a great story of you organizing some kind of airdrop of Branson into some kind oh, of yeah. issue. Yeah, I saved his life. I don't care anything. What else? I saved his life and used to remind him of it very often. You know, he's a great showman. He's incredible. He's a great businessman, but he's um, larger than life. And there is a, there doesn't seem to be a no in his vocabulary. So when we were opening one of the stores in Sydney, um, there was a monorail that was going to run from the center of Sydney right to this brand new megastore. And he goes, I know what I'll do. I'll abseil 
off Centre Point Tower, which is this very famous iconic thing in Sydney. And I'll land on the monorail like Spider-Man. And then I'll do this Spider-Man move and walk along it and arrive at my store. That was all fine because the monorail wasn't operational and wasn't going to be for a number of months. I had a sixth sense a day or maybe it was 48 hours before. And I was like, I wonder if there's any power on this monorail that doesn't yet work. And I called somebody at the counter and after a lot of toing and froing, I got hold of someone uh, in the engineering department that said, yes, it is. It's, it, these are live rails. We do tests on this. And if he abseils on it, he could be burned alive or something or electrocuted. So I told him and he was like, oh, within minutes, he'd come up with another idea. And he was like, I need water skis. I need a boat. I'm going to dress as a, an airline captain, find me stewardesses. And he came in on Sydney Harbour on water skis landed and threw all the TV presenters into Sydney Harbour. That was his stunt. So within a day, he'd come up with this madness. We made front page of every newspaper. And that's what, and I have this letter from him that just says, I don't know what just happened, but it was amazing. And I love that because we, we literally, I mean, at the end of the day, he was opening a, re you know, a record store and we were front page news. We were front TV news of all that, but that's him. That's about him. There's very few people you can work with in marketing or in PR that you could literally say, jump into the harbor. I mean, I didn't even say it. And they do it because it will make a good photo. He is acutely aware, or was more, um, of how to make a splash, literally. Unbelievable. Look, I think self-publicist obviously is uh, taken to the extreme there. But talking of one self-publicist who does it in one way moving to perhaps another self-publicist who you know love him or loathe them has achieved you know extraordinary things compared to the average man on the street take us to the thing that you say put you in the spotlight when you probably least expected it and um you uh, wrote what as we said in the introduction is the most famous email potentially of all time and that's a phrase that was said not by me, it's said by many in the media. And I used to argue with this and say, oh, don't be ridiculous. And they'd say, okay, who wrote a more famous email? And actually there isn't anything because anything you come up with historically, there was no email at that time. So um, the person you're referring to is Donald John Trump, I presume. Um, Indeed. President Donald John Trump. So um, my dealings with him, uh, began probably a decade ago when I used to do red carpet PR and marketing events and he would attend them. And he was always very polite, charming. His family who, when they attended, polite, on-time, charming. For anyone who's listening who works in the field of events or PR, those are very important things. So many people turn up late, they're annoying and horrible. So he and his family were exactly what you would want. You want them there at six, they'll arrive at five minutes to six, they'll do what they need to do and they'll disappear. So I'd met him a little bit. Then I had a client who was on the Celebrity Apprentice in America mm -hmm. and I met him once or twice to nod. But then my life changed in 2012. I was managing as well as doing PR for a Russian-based pop star, international pop star, but Russian-based, named Emin. And um, as well as being a pop star, his family were known as the Trumps of Russia because they owned um, an awful lot of uh, commercial real estate 
and uh, music and entertainment venues. And we had an idea that what Emin wanted to do was to become famous internationally. I, as a publicist and marketing person, wanted to find platforms to do that. So I had him perform at the World Music Awards. We did the Winter Olympics, which happened to be in Sochi, so that was handy. And then I had this idea that we should go meet with the people at Miss Universe because mm. it has a billion TV viewers, which is an astonishing number. Um, and yes, they're not all going to be interested in Emin's style of singing, which I may add had been described as like a cross between Ricky Martin, Robbie Williams, and a bit of Elvis thrown into it. Oh my so God. So he's a crooner. I'm going to have to YouTube Emin now. Because... Yeah, yeah. He's a crooner, <laughs> basically. And, um, you know, he'd grown up in the States. Uh, he, he's originally from Azerbaijan. He lived in Moscow and, and, and he'd grown up in New Jersey. So he was an interesting mix. Uh -huh. Spoke perfect English, sang in English, had never sung in Russian, actually, when I met him. Uh, I mean, he could, but he hadn't. And um, so we met with the Miss Universe organization because I happened to know someone who had been Miss Universe. It's a ridiculous thing to say, but I did. I'm just and loving your roller decks, Rob. I've got in my roller, it was the most ridiculous thing, but he said to me, I need a beautiful woman for a video we're gonna do called Amor. And I was like, my friend Diana Mendoza was Miss Universe. Amazing. I asked her, she said, thank you but no thank you. But what I will do is connect you with the Miss Universe organization. We met with them, Emin and I went in, he charmed them, we made them smile. And they said, why don't you have the current Miss Universe, Olivia Colpo? She's American, she'll be in your video. But before all that could go down, he said, why don't you have the Miss Universe contest in Moscow? Have you ever thought about it? They said they had, but it was full of red tape. It was very difficult. And they'd looked at a couple of venues and one of them that they loved was called Crocus City Hall. Emin smiled, kicked me, and I said, he owns it. So it's probably not that difficult anymore. And Emin goes, let's do it, we'll make it work. Now, what everyone should be aware of is the co-owner of that pageant was Donald Trump. So I thought, oh, this will be fun because now he'll get to meet Donald Trump. And, you know, I, I had an idea they would get on because I just did, and I was right. And um, so they ended up hosting Miss Universe and um, Trump was coming to Moscow. It was uh, held in November of 2012. And what was interesting was I basically had to look after Donald Trump during his time in Moscow. And during that time, um, we did amazing things. Not only did he do what he was there to do, but Emin decided to shoot a music video during the 36 hours Trump was in Moscow and said to me, you know, I need you to get Donald Trump to be in my music video, which is not that easy to do, but I picked my time and I said to Trump, "Will you, would you, I don't even know what I said, but I basically said, please do this. And he said to me, if you can do it in 15 minutes, I'll do it. And Emin famously said, we'll do it in 13, which is shocking anyway. But so we became friendly with him uh, on some level and Miss Universe contest happened. I, th I think what's interesting, just as an aside, you've mentioned uh, some really interesting names so far. And I think the big thing that has come out of every single situation that you've mentioned, and maybe this is going to feed into some of the things that you're going to share with us later, 
Every single one of them has a yes, I can do attitude, no matter what. You want me in the video? Do it in 15 minutes. We can, we're going to jump in the Sydney Harbour? No problem. It's, it's a yes attitude. Right. And that's interesting because the types of people I've represented and I've worked with over the years, a lot of them really do have that. And Emin has that as well, I may add. Like, it, you know, it, when you multitask in the way that some of these, let's just call him a billionaire, his family are billionaires. It doesn't mean he individually is, but he's okay. When you have multi-businesses going at the same time, you know, we'd be waiting for him to go live on air. We did the National Lottery show in the UK. Well, I couldn't even find him five minutes before. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm organizing chairs and new furniture for one of our developments. I'm like, but you're on air to the British public. So, and he said something that's interesting to me. He goes, I promise you one thing, I'll never let you down. And a lot of the people I dealt with were like that. And, and you know, again, with Donald Trump, he's many things, but anything he said he would do, he did. He said he would come to Moscow, he did. He had to cut the time short. He assured me that everything we needed him to do there, which was a lot of press, a lot of stuff, he would do, he did. And it's, it's kind of interesting how that all works. Yes, there's a, so he did the music video. It was insane, but he did it. And the irony of that, I may add, is that music video was shot at a time when, and people who follow Russiagate will know what this is all about, the famous P tape that allegedly took place was supposed to have taken place because basically they didn't know where Donald Trump was. Well, I knew where he was. He was with us shooting a music video. So it's interesting how it all came to play much later on because I was able to tell people who were investigating all of this, wait, 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 Donald Trump was with us shooting a me. I know it wasn't on anyone's schedule, but, and there you go. You can, and you can Google it, by the way. It's called In Another Life by Emin. Donald Trump is in it. He opens the video and he closes it by firing him. It's like a scene in The Apprentice. So I had Trump, but, but you talk about this yes attitude. One of my favorite anecdotes of that trip was on Trump addressed a group of about 20 of the leading business, marketing, and uh, financial leaders of Russia who had come to a gathering at Nobu in Moscow, which Emin also owned, I may add. And, um, you know, Trump answered questions. They were all obviously excited to see him. And at the very end, uh, the head of Sparebank, which is a huge bank in Russia, asked him what he thought, and remember he's a private citizen at this stage, what he thought about the European debt crisis in relation to the Greek bailout. And I remember turning to a friend of mine who was there and thinking, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> and Trump stood up and he said to them, have any of you ever watched a show called The Apprentice? He then spoke for 10 minutes about how amazing The Apprentice was, how amazing he was for having come up with the idea, how amazing a money spinner it was for NBC, which had the show. And his only reference to Europe was the fact that it was shown in Europe. He thanked them all for coming and got a standing ovation. Brilliant. On the way out in the lift, he turned to me and said, has there ever been a better self-promoter than Donald Trump? And that sums up Donald Trump. So when people say to me now, 
can you believe how he behaves? I'm like, yes, have you ever listened to or met Donald Trump? That is who he is. And so to answer your question, this had a life of its own. After that, Emin and I kept in touch with him. And when Emin used to be in the States, we would drop by Trump's office, say hello. I would take a picture of my client, post it in the media, and everyone's happy. Um, move on to 2016. And Emin asked me out of the blue if I would send an email to the Trumps, as he said, because a friend of his father, who was an attorney, a well-placed uh, attorney, a prosecutor, wanted a meeting with the Trumps. They had some potentially uh, interesting and uh, derogatory information about funding to the Democrats' campaign, which was Hillary's campaign. Um, I was surprised because Emin and I had never talked about politics. We were music people. It made no sense. I pushed back. I argued it's very well documented what I said. Nothing good could come of this. But at the end, I made a decision. When you have a client like this, who there is no in their vocabulary, it doesn't exist. Comes back to the other say, side, but, you know, yes. They yes, they say yes. They want to hear yes. And they're used to you saying yes. So your only choice is to go yes and not do it, yes and do it, yes and try and push back, which is what I did, or no, and potentially you might need to find yourself another client or another job. So I did it. I wrote this 137-word email to Don Jr., Donald Trump's mm -hmm. son, who I'd met with Emin a couple of times, didn't really know very well, but enough to write him a note, and thought no more of it. Don answered, and my answer was, why don't you and Emin just talk to each other on the phone, which they did, so I never thought any more of it. That led to a meeting at Trump Tower, which is the famous Trump Tower meeting. I was never supposed to be there, but again, in a perfect storm, I was supposed to hand these people off, Don Jr. asked me to stay because I was the only person he'd ever met. And there I am in arguably one of the most famous meetings now in political history, at least in America. And nothing came of the meeting itself because it turned out to be basically a bunch of nonsense, which again has been well documented. What happened was Donald Trump, to everyone's surprise, except my own, became the president of the United States. Suddenly, every meeting he'd ever had, everything he'd ever done, everything his family had ever done was in the spotlight. And this meeting became one of the pivotal parts of Russiagate. That email that I wrote, which led to that, has since been described by historians, politicians, and the media as the most famous email in history. But look, that is its story. It's dominated the past four years in many ways. And, uh, you know, all, all from that 137 word email that, you know, a boy from Manchester who started on the Gazette sent. Right. And, um, and that, of course, led to myself being high, not even highlighted. That, that sounds positive, but being put into this horrific media spotlight. And um, your life is... Uh, segmented, it's analyzed, it's debated. It's, you know, I'm, I was famous among my friends for taking silly hat selfies. I quite, I don't have a hat, I don't own a hat, but I like taking ridiculous photos with hats. Well, they suddenly were on the lead mm -hmm. item on CNN, or they were in the Daily Mail, or they were on the ITV News. I didn't close my social media down. So, so basically, and again, I'm sure most people know, this email became public knowledge a year later. And uh, 
People said I was working for the Kremlin. I was Vladimir Putin's puppet. Others said I was working for Hillary Clinton to try and ruin the Trump campaign. I was working for her. Others said I was working for the Mossad and that this was all Mossad-led. Others said I was an MI5 Mossad. I was, I was like working for my client, trying to make him famous. So it's very interesting when you know the reality and you read this nonsense and you know it's nonsense, but there's nothing you can do because at that stage I had to have lawyers involved because I was then asked to give evidence to Bob Mueller's inquiry, to a grand jury, to the Senate, to the Congress. And these are words that to someone from the Jewish Gazette in Manchester, it's so insane to even say these words that, you know, I remember going into the hearing on Capitol Hill and saying to my lawyer, I find it bizarre and ironic I've never even been here as a tourist. And I'm going now to give evidence on Capitol Hill to the Senate of the United States of America. And he said to me, what's even more interesting is your name then goes into the Library of Congress. So this is forever. It's not like they just throw it out at the end Ooh. of the day. So it's the most bizarre thing ever imaginable. Um, and it went on for three years. Just zooming out a little bit, if you can, because obviously this is so personal and, uh, you know, impacted you. This is this is the sort of classic, what do you do in a crisis when it comes to publicity? Um, and, you know, whether it's on a national political, you know, scale or companies have, you know, Twitter feed storms of customers complaining, um, how do you manage public perception and PR during a crisis? No, it's an excellent question. And one of the things, and I, and I wrote this in my book, which is another phrase I never thought I would use, um, is that I had to look at what was happening to me as if I was doing crisis PR for a client, just so happened the client was me, because it was too bizarre otherwise to even deal with. Um, I've always, always believed, and I believe it even more now, that I don't believe in the adage that all publicity is good publicity. I really don't. I've always cautioned people who say to me, I wish I was famous. I wish everybody knew. And I said, you don't because you don't understand what it means and what it is. I've worked with celebrities and people who cannot walk down the street. You don't want that. I use the example. I would rather be Simon Fuller who created American Idol and Pop Idol than Simon Cowell, who everyone knows and can't go and buy a cup of coffee. No one knows who Simon Fuller is or what he looks like. He banked the billion dollars. Simon Cowell is the face of it and can't move. So it's, um, it was an exercise in crisis PR and the publicist side of me wanted to put a soapbox in the middle of wherever, Times Square, and tell the story to the world. But the reality was, I couldn't do that, both legally and also, to be honest, I didn't know the story. The story was as alien to me because I'd paid no attention to this nonsense for years. And then years later, it surfaces type of thing. I couldn't even remember the email when it, so, so one, one lesson to everyone is that when you're in the midst of a crisis, whatever it is, just take a step back for a while and, understand what that all is and what's happening and the bigger picture. Everyone who spoke early on about this, whether it was Don Jr., whether it was M, whoever it was, 
without question had to wheel back or reel in what they said and change it because as the story developed they went oh yeah I forgot about that oh I didn't know that and so I would have been the same because I couldn't remember any of it I was I didn't speak to anyone about this publicly for over a year and a half but in that time and the first person I spoke to about it was I sat down with the Sunday Times to do a magazine story they did six pages on it and what was shocking was how much I didn't remember when it started. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even remember what they were talking about. I literally had to go back in my head and relive it. So I would say the first lesson of crisis PR is look at what's happening as a big picture and stand back and, and resist the urge, which I had from the first minute to go, I have a statement. Also resist the urge to say no comment. That's the worst thing in the world. If you're going to say no comment, you may as well comment. So... It's, you know, I spoke to a few outlets when this first started. I told the truth, which is worth something, but not necessarily a lot. And then I shut up for 18 months and it was the most difficult thing imaginable. If I'd had a lawyer who was like me, I would have caused myself problems mm -hmm. because I would have said, there was only one email. Well, guess what? There weren't. We had three backwards and forwards. Well, I didn't remember that until I saw them. You know, oh, yeah, it all took place on this day. I had no idea what day it was. There's a lot of things that you have to have everything come out there and go, now I understand. And, and that would be my first inclination to say to people. And it wouldn't have been up until this happened. But from a, from a sort of brand perspective, a lot of, a lot of my listeners will be, um, entrepreneurs or tech companies or businesses who from time to time there will be crises and um, you know we, we see them at you know large scale enterprise scale or you know small businesses do have crisis and um, you know how to manage them from a brand perspective to to protect what you want to keep true and to, to put out the fire as fast as possible is you know, probably everyone's natural instinct it sounded like it was yours but it was but, but you know what one of the most important parts of it is? I think this idea of being honest. Um, I was asked a question by um, a congressman during a particularly heat. They, I had no heated debate with anyone. But as you can imagine, you have the left and you have the right in the interview with me having a go at each other. I just happened to be in the middle. So in one heated debate between them, they asked me something and I said, you know, I have to just tell you something. I wasn't pro Hillary. I wasn't pro Trump. I was pro my client. And the reason you can't understand this is because you're all politicians. And I said, but I have to be honest now. I wouldn't have voted for him. I wouldn't have voted for her. I said, and if I'm being honest, having witnessed this, I wouldn't vote for any of you either. Is that a bad thing to say? And one of them said to me, it may be a bad thing to say, but it's an honest thing to say. And if you want to know how many people seem to have been honest in this entire inquiry, not a lot. I think so, what, what you're saying is really interesting because we all, as you know, just uh, consumers or viewers, particularly in politics, you know, we we roll our eyes every single time a question's asked and the standard deflective answer comes out. But within within the business world. I actually think you may be on to a great tip here, which is that people just 
like it when you own up and say, this went wrong. We hold I on. said, they say to me, what would you regret about this email? I say, writing it and sending it. That's it. I've always said that. So I think you have to take ownership of it and just go, I screwed up. You know, if you have, um, you know, a number of my clients are brands and businesses. And at the moment, they're health related, a lot of them because of COVID. And I have ones that have created things that aren't quite what they're supposed to be. And I say to them, you can't say this when it's that. You could say it, but it's nonsense. Why not just say that, which is really good in itself. And the honesty part of it, people don't mean to be dishonest. They just want sometimes it to be something different. But if there's stuff that goes wrong or if things don't work or if just say it because it's also a very good, it, it, it's very uh, disarming for people as well. They're ready to attack you. And when you go, I've had it. People attack me all the time on Twitter. People attack me on social media. People have tried to attack me in public, I may add. And um, I just say, no, you're right. They go, you're the one that wrote that email. And when I go, yeah, I am. And that's what happened when I first found out about it, the Washington Post called me. I was on vacation. I'd been on a cruise ship. I hadn't read the news in nearly two weeks. And I was having lunch. I was in Athens. And I picked up my cell phone. And, and this reporter said to me, are you Rob Goat? Yes. Did you write an email to Don Jr. about blah, blah, blah? I said, yes. Why? And they said, yes. And I said, yes. Why? And they said, um, have you read the newspapers? And I said, no, I haven't done anything. Why? And they said, you know what? We should really hang up. You should really read the newspapers. But the point is, from then on, I mean, why would I say no? It, I think the problem with sometimes in marketing and in, and in crisis PR especially is they create a crisis, an even bigger crisis. And, you know, a, lawyer, a very famous entertainment lawyer in America, which is where I lived when all this happened, I happened to run into him a day or two before I was going to testify to Bob Mueller's people. And he said to me, I have to tell you something. No matter what you did or you didn't do, just don't lie to them. They don't, they don't get people on what they did or didn't do. They get people for lying to them about what they did or didn't do. And I said to him, well, that's obvious. And he goes, I'm just telling you. Well, it's not obvious because speaking only in fact and truth is actually quite difficult. They don't want your opinion. They don't want your assumption. They want fact. And again, I'll tell you a funnier side because there's very little that is funny about this, but we've done four hours and there's a lunch break. And they said, this is the mullity. They said to me, would you like soup or a sandwich? What do you think you prefer? And I said, I don't have an opinion. I said, you've made me so insane and crazy that I no longer have opinions about anything. I only deal in fact. So if you show me a soup, I can tell you it's a soup. And if you show me a sandwich, I can tell you it's a sandwich. I can't give you my opinion, which they thought was quite amusing. But the point is, it makes you very paranoid. They don't want you to say, oh, of course, that's not what he meant, because you don't know that's not what he meant. Well, you try having that conversation based only in fact, and it going on for nine hours a day. It's not that simple. I, th I think what you're perhaps saying is, you know, even if we go back, I can't even think how many years back it is now till the Tony Blair era. But, right. you know, Alistair Campbell was sort of that first, not the first, but was the first one to be coined as the spin doctor. Spin doctor, yeah. And, and perhaps we're in a post-spin world now. People appreciate 
honesty and purpose in what people... Well, look at COVID. Like, I think people just want someone to come on the TV and say, this is really what it is. So you're locked... I'm talking England now. You're locked down until December 2nd. If you lock down till the end of the year, you might be free in the new year. If you don't, this could happen. But they don't. They keep teasing with different things. This idea, I know we're now off on a tangent, but this idea that they're talking about Christmas. So the idea is everybody needs five days of Christmas. But as a lot of people have said, well, not if that ruins the whole of 2021, but it needs somebody to lay this all out. Now, in the States, the problem Trump had was, I actually think at the very beginning, he actually did quite a clever job of bringing in private enterprise and business and health and all of that together. The problem is he, because he's the greatest showman in his mind, he couldn't stop. So he would give press conferences every day, say nonsense, just fill it with his own antics and his own ego. So it all went wrong. But here in, in the UK, you know, I think they just want the truth and nobody knows what the truth does a mask work? Doesn't it work? Just say it and tell them why it works and give options. But it isn't. And it's like that everywhere. And I think um, I think honesty counts for a lot. Now, is, are there times when you shouldn't be honest? Sure. If, if there's a reason, if it's like your, you know, your wife and your wedding anniversary and you forgot to buy something, you have to say, oh my goodness, the shop was closed. I'm getting it tomorrow. That's fine. But should you say, no, we actually, you'll all be fine at Christmas when you won't? No, because you just have to say five days later, we screwed up and you're all locked down again. So, you know, I think, um, I think that, that yes can do is great, but it needs to be qualified as well. And it needs to be real. So let's shift the conversation a bit, Rob, and move to um, what I call PR chutzpah. Um, for those of you who don't know the word chutzpah, go and Google it. But it's really about um, jumping ahead of perhaps where you think you are now and creating a reality that um, was never imaginable without some level of this chutzpah, this, this character that takes you into a place that, that you, you perhaps thought wasn't even, even possible. Now, when it comes to sort of PR marketing for individuals and personal branding is mm -hmm. huge these days. Um, it's so important. You know, I'm a big advocate of LinkedIn. A lot of my clients are on LinkedIn. It's where they spend most of their time, particularly in a B2B world. Um, how do you become the greatest showman, as you said before, in your sphere without being egotistical and all the rest of it, but actually giving value and um, being able to, to, to deliver, deliver yourself, to shout above all of your competitors and be the voice? Um, again, it's a really interesting question. I do think you need to have a bit of a massive ego to be in the world of PR. Um, and I think it helps, but you have to know how to use it. Um, for instance, you know, when all of this madness happened to me, being a publicist helped on the one hand, but if I'd actually worked in a bank, it would have been much easier. Well, like banks, maybe not the right word because they were investigating his finances. But if I'd worked in a cake shop, it would have been much easier. The problem is you never want to be the story or make yourself the center of attention. So I think that um, today is very different from when I started out, even as a publicist, which was in like 1989, because 
of social media. First of all, everyone thinks they're a journalist. Everyone thinks they can do PR because they have a cell phone. And there's never been more opportunity for media, but it's never been more difficult because, again, everyone thinks they can do it. So why are you any different? And, and I think we've lost the plot a little bit in terms of real journalism as opposed to nonsense that somebody posts on TikTok or wherever and goes, look, they found a this and this. It's not. It's just nonsense. The other issue is the news in some countries, the US being a prime example, is no longer news. It's a reality show. It's news as entertainment. It's opinion news. So if you watch outlets, and I criticize them a lot, like CNN, well, it's not news. It's not impartial. It's people going, I hate Trump or I hate someone or I don't like this. And this is why you shouldn't either. And if you watch Fox News, it's why they said, I love Trump and you should too. And here's why. Well, that's not news either. So they shouldn't call themselves news channels. They should be news as entertainment or opinion. And that's fine. But I think you have to be able to shout above the the crowd, otherwise you're going to get lost. There is so much. Everyone wants PR for everything. You know, if I have a new piece of paper that's a different color, chances are the person who found that color wants PR and has PR. Um, so many times I talk myself out of business, but I say to people, why would you want PR? Like, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense to me. And you're asking me to do it. You're offering me money to do it. But there was a time when I would have said, oh, well, let's try. Now, years and years and years of being in this, I say I'm not even going to waste a small amount of your investment on it because I can tell you now there's nothing to be got for you. Uh, and I have these conversations all the time, both with potential clients, sometimes with current clients where I go, we need to take a break because there's nothing to be got. And with colleagues of mine who work in PR that go, I had one yesterday that said, can't you help me get this? Because I can't. And I said, but the reason you can't get them anything is there's nothing to get. What you should do is tell your client you can't do it. But I understand times are hard. Business is tough. But you have to understand. I think being a journalist was the best thing that happened to me before being a publicist. Because I understand I've been at the other side. I've had people pitch me stories. And, you know, a funny story is a, a friend of mine's a producer in, uh, at ABC TV in, in America. And he said he gets all kinds of ridiculous pitches for stories. ABC is a national broadcaster. And once he said somebody pitched him a story and believed this was a story and said, our client, who's a singer, now plays both big and small locations. That was their story. So what I'm saying is if you have a publicist that's willing to take that on, well, they should be fired in the first place because it's not a story for anybody. But they know so little that they're they're it's the equivalent of pitching the BBC and saying this should be on, you know, the six o'clock news or it's ridiculous. So I think know your client, know your market and know your message. Otherwise, it's a waste of time, a waste of everybody's time. And it makes you look ridiculous. But fr from, a, fr from the other side of the fence, for those companies that are doing this internally, they might be calling in agencies and other experts, but, you know, you just have to look at, say, Gary Vee, who I follow a lot and, you know, I take a lot of advice from him. He says the first rule is forget what you're actually doing as a business 
and turn yourself into a PR production company for what you do. Um, and, and do that day in, day out on social media. Yeah. Um, and you will be able to become the greatest showman, the digital guru in your thing, um, because you're shouting about it and you've got a yes, can do attitude. How is right. that, that different? I mean, what's your take on that? No, my take is is very different in the final piece. But I think that there are companies... Um, there's a very good friend of mine. She she launched a brand called Bandia, which is actually her name, which is a very successful leisure wear company in the US. And it's, it's fitness and music and leisure wear. And they have an enormous team of people who create content 24 hours a day. Now, if you're a leisure brand and you tie in with music and fitness, yes, it makes perfect sense to do that. But you have to know what you're doing because, again, if they were just doing it in their office above the kitchen, which is what so many people do now, I don't think it has the same impact. And I think you get lost. I just think that, I'll, I'll say it again, which is there's never been more opportunity to market yourself or PR or any of that, but it's really difficult to break through. It just is. Um, so I understand what he's saying, which is do this and do that and shout. But you have to have something to shout about and you have to know who your target audience is. And what, like, if I do an amazing TikTok promotion, but my target audience are 55 plus, well, the only TikTok they hear is a pacemaker. You know, it's like they're not dancing on TikTok. So, again, a lot of these people say to me, we want a promotion on Snapchat and TikTok. And I'm like, for what? Like, your audience can barely operate a computer and a cell phone. Why? Well, because that's what our kids tell us we should do. That's what our grandkids, that's what our employees, well, it might be good for them. But if you don't know your audience or really where your brand's going, well, okay, it might look great, but I don't understand what it does for you. There is an element of what we spoke about right at the beginning, coming back to, you know, Branson's words of, even if you don't know how to do it, say yes and worry about it later. Of the ah, but wait, I have to stop you. But like Emin, he has a billion dollars behind him then I'll change what I have to say. If you say to me, I have a billion dollars behind me. Now, I want to import penguins and send them to all our clients. Then I say to you, that's an amazing promotion. You know, it's going to cost you $100 million to make this work. If you can say to me, that's no problem. Let's just do the best. What I'm talking about is people that go, we want to do this and do whatever. And literally all they've got is this screen and this microphone. Well, then you have to be brilliant at it and you have to know your audience. So, yes, it, you can do it. But but I, as I say, Branson had the luxury of having that behind him, not always, but for a long time. And so did many others of my clients that I work with. You know, when I work with HMV, if we wanted to put prints on the roof of of Bond Street as we did. Well, we can because they're a billion pound, whatever they are coming. But could I have done it if I owned a record store in Herzliya? Maybe not. It's a great idea, but can you follow that through? And I think you can create momentum. And I think social media allowed you to connect. I just see so much of this and so much of this stuff. And I think just know your audience and, and speak to them. And sometimes just doing what we're doing, just speaking to your audience is better than having dancing gerbils and a chipmunk drinking Diet Coke, in my opinion. 
I, th I think COVID, aside from obviously the, the, the horror of what it's caused in people's lives, um, will actually be seen in 10, 20 years time as a time where more entrepreneurs were born than ever before. I think there's going to be some outrageously successful businesses that mm -hmm. come out of the, 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 the COVID era um, that we didn't know would exist as, you know, before that. Um, but if you're, if you're, you know, Bob, Mary um, or Jim sitting in your, you know, spare bedroom with a side hustle today that is going to become the next big thing, you just don't know it yet. How do you get that publicity for yourself when you haven't got that billion dollars behind you? You've got the megaphone of social media. You've t identified target audience. What else do we do? Well, I'll become a bit new agey for a second. I believe often people are where they're supposed to be, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. So I think if you have this next big thing that is going to take off, it is going to take off. And so as long as you believe that, you can sit there. By the way, I need to go back to something you said about COVID. I think what it's also done is it's allowed a much bigger audience to understand that the way we're communicating right now via Skype or Zoom is actually the way of the future. It may, we don't need to be sat in some big glamorous studio to be important. It's what we say that's important. So I think that's happened. Um, I think that people have to really believe passionately in their project and what they have. I think you can demo it. I think you can speak to your audience. And I think you can be clever and creative. Here is an example. Again, when I worked with HMV, we, Madonna, many years ago, had a famous book out called Sex. It was a metal book. It was her most famous thing, whatever it was. We knew we couldn't get Madonna. There was no way we could get Madonna in all our 300 stores around the world. So what I said was, but this book is a little bit naughty. It's a bit whatever. It almost has a confessional feel of it of people going to church. What if we build these Madonna confessionals everywhere, have people pay to a charity a pound or a dollar, whatever it was, to go and look at this book in the confessional and then confess something or other on the way out? Now, this built a life of its own to... We had CNN come live from one of these. We had the BBC come on. What amused me was there was a program in which Madonna was interviewed about some nonsense. And she talked about being a part of this confessional promotion. She wasn't. It had nothing to do with her, but it gets a life of its own. So I think you can definitely, 100%, if you're sitting there now thinking, I have a brand and I have a thousand pounds or I have less than that. Well, it doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. What, what I'm saying about the billion dollars behind you is when you sometimes want to come up with these outrageous things, just know that having a cushion behind you allows you sometimes to be more creative early on. But we can all be creative. And, and in this medium that we have now, social media, that is all people care about. Nobody really cares about TV. I don't know anyone that reads a newspaper. I mean, I know some people do, but not really. And, you know, I've done major international promotions on TV for, for groups, for music acts, and sold seven CDs off the back of it. You know, it's like I could have actually given the audience more away. But that isn't the overall point of it. But I do think it's changed. 
I have a godson who's 20. He doesn't read a newspaper or do that. He's online. So, and he's, you know, and he's looking at all of this. So it, it changes. You have to change with it. But I do think if your audience, and I say this only because a lot of the people I work with, their audience is kind of 50 plus. It is cute to have me in a unicorn hat on Snapchat but they don't know what any of those words mean. So it doesn't matter. It's A friend of mine is the CTO at Snapchat and always says to me, why don't any of your promotions? I said, because they don't understand who you are, what you are, leave me alone. It makes no sense. So I just think understand your audience. That's all I would say there. But be, be contextual. Yes. And, and, you know, that was why I wrote a book about my thing. I just wanted to put it all in context. Without context, nothing made any sense. Just, yeah, put up, put what you have let it make sense to your own audience. I know I sound like a broken record, but so many times I've seen people do brilliant things, but it makes no sense for what they're trying to do and who they're trying to speak to. And I've seen people do very good things that aren't necessarily the most brilliant, but they're targeted perfectly and they work. And I, and I think that's key. But, you know, a good piece of publicity, there's no question of it, can help kickstart you, can help give you a bump, but just know what you're doing. And, and and as I say, know that all publicity isn't good publicity. Make sure the back end is ready. So if there's a story on TV about your product, make sure that after an hour you haven't run out or your website hasn't crashed. Make sure I've had clients go on and talk about their product and their brand. And they're asked a very simple question and they can't articulate what their brand is. And it sounds ludicrous but i have it time and time again when i say to people explain to me what it is you do or what it is you offer they talk in circles so i think that's hugely important to know what it is that you are what it is that your brand is and what your brand message is and it sounds simple but stick a tv camera in front of them and be told you've got 90 seconds and now try it and practice, stand in front of a mirror and do it. Because if you can't get your message across, if at the end of two minutes, I've no idea what you're talking about, well, you've just wasted it. You don't get a second chance. It's, uh, you know, be right the first time. So look, Rob, on that note of being who you're meant to be and being authentic and knowing what you want to, to deliver, um, it's been absolutely fascinating having you on the show. Um, I really enjoyed it. I hope the listeners all um, enjoyed what uh, what you've had to share with them. Again, go and listen to Rob's podcast, An Englishman In, available on all your favourite podcast channels. Highly recommend it. Um, and I just hope that all the emails that you send and receive in the future are full of good opportunities and success for you in every possible way. I appreciate it. And if any of you get an email from me, I would suggest you delete it. Um, <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Just before you go, I would really appreciate it if you hit the subscribe button so you can get weekly updates on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed your coffee.